right. Um, we're back with Kung Fu Yoga. Um, Carl Ja. It's Ja, right? Ja, yeah. Ja. It's Ja, because I thought like Ja, like jungle, but it's not. It's ja, um, it so in standard Mandarin, the H means you, you kind of roll your tongue when you speak it. So, okay. or Ja, but my, I, I, I'm from the South. I'm from the oh. Southern China. We don't roll our tongue. <laughs> My ancestors haven't been rolling their tongue for the last thousand years. So <laughs> I just say how, how we see it. Say it. Uh, the first time I, the first Spanish class I took, the guy was from Spain. Mm. So he, he's talking about Spain and he's like, you know, Zaragoza, and he's pronouncing it with this lisp. And I was like, Oh, this dude has a lisp. Like, and then I realized <laughs> I can't do that. I can't do that Spanish, uh, the R, the rolling of the, uh, the R. I could, I could, for the life of me, like the Spanish and also Russian. Like, uh, you know, we had a, I remember in class with the oh. teacher demonstrated how to do like, <laughs> I can't do that. Yeah, well, in, in Indian English, they roll every, I mean, at least where I'm from in Kerala, it's like every R is a rolling R. The, it's yeah. the other R that's hard. It's the R, R you know, they'll mm. try really hard to get that. All right, well, here we are, the Canadian Parliament, and now the Dutch have gotten in on the action, I'm sure you've heard. Yeah. The Dutch Parliament have declared that China is committing genocide in Xinjiang. The Canadian Parliament declared um, that uh, China's committing genocide in Xinjiang. Unanimous, unanimous vote. So liberals, conservatives, NDP, the Social Democrats, everybody yeah. agrees. Um, so... You know, they used such, you know, they, they got testimony from Mr. Zenz himself, Adrian Zenz. Wow. <laughs> so they, you know, they, <laughs> they, they did their homework, you know, they yes. went to the world's leading expert on the issue. Um, yes. So, you know, I wanted to say you've done a long, I relied on this when I was first studying up on the issue. You did a really long episode on your Silk and Steel podcast. Was it like two years ago now? Yeah, 2018. I should probably do like an update. Three I mean, like years a lot of, ago. Yeah. yeah, that was when the campaign uh, kind of the media campaign in the Western media kind of started. That's when the report um, I I did the podcast actually before the Adrian Zenz report was more <laughs> yes. became widely oh, yeah. known. They took you to task for not including that report. Yes, and yes, because that. I'm like, he published this report like a month after I did my podcast. <laughs> but they're like, oh, but but it was already available in this uh in this institutional link. I'm like, Jesus Christ, like how am I supposed to know? You know, like yeah. But, um, you know, so yeah, it was episode 55. You and me, we also did our Kung Fu Yoga episode comparing Kashmir and Xinjiang. Yes. And so, but what I wanted to do tonight, well, today for you, tonight for me, um, is to talk about Canada and mm. China. Because I think, you know, it's it's not what about, you know, there, it's easy to say like, okay, well, just because Canada is bad too, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can criticize Canadian colonialism and also, you know, despise yeah. Chinese totalitarianism. And that's, you know, fine, whatever, you can say that. But what I'm saying here is, Canada is making this accusation. I think it's a good time to talk about what Canada is and what Canada does in the world and what Canada does within these borders of, you know, I'm going to start saying so-called Canada <laughs> for, for reasons <laughs> that will become uh, clear. And 
people yes. who want to follow this up, um, me and um, my former high school history teacher, Dave Power, we've done a series um, on modern Western civilization. And we did three episodes on Canada and two of the three are about Canadian colonialism. Um, so you can, you can follow up. We're going to go into much more. I, I, I go into much more detail there than I do here. But um, yeah, what do you, you know, before we start, what did you make, what did you, how did you, what did you make of this declaration by Canada? Um, it's like uh, all these uh, U.S. client states are one step behind U.S., right? Like uh, Pompeo declared uh, uh, genocide uh, just before he stepped down. On just his before... way out the door. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because that was his, uh, basically, I think that's his declaration for 2024 election, right? He's building his legacy. Mm. Um, he's also leaving behind uh, basically a poison pill in the U.S.-China relationship for his next administration. And in fact, the Biden administration did already started to walk back on that claim. You know, we have the foreign policy magazine reported the U.S. State, State Department, the new State Department under Biden, their lawyers have, have issued a statement saying uh, there's not enough evidence to call what happened in Xinjiang in genocide. So the Biden administration lawyers are backed up. And, and yes. similarly, you know, the parliament passed it unanimously. The cabinet abstained the Canadian uh, liberal cabinet of Justin yep. Trudeau and Trudeau himself said, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, there's not enough evidence to make the claim. Uh, one of the ambassadors, Bob Ray, a favorite, a local favorite around here, he said something really funny. He said something like, well, there's no doubt that what's going on is genocide. Uh, we need an investigation into these allegations. So it's like, is there no doubt? Or is there, is this an allegation? But, you know, this is very Canadian way of thinking and talking. So, yeah, it's like uh, they, it's, it's a strong symbolic statement, but it's uh, at the level of the executive, both in the U.S. and Canada, they're sort of saying, well, we're not necessarily endorsing it. So while my Canadian friend, uh, I, I spoke to him about this, and uh, this is what he sent me on, uh, on Facebook Messenger. I'll read it here. Okay. Virtue signaling is like 50% <laughs> of Canadian foreign policy under Kaiser mainstream party. The other 50% is lobbying for their mining companies. Or mining, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I thought that's pretty accurate. Um, and I also just saw a tweet from uh, Bob Hughes. I think I can't. Oh, here, here it is. I found the tweet. Uh, Don Hughes, sorry. He said, uh, now that Canada has resolved that China is committing a genocide, the obvious next step will be a full yes. trade embargo to inflict economic pain. Canada's Navy could interdict major American shipping routes still collaborating with the regime. <laughs> so this is like, uh, this is, they think it's 1840. I think Canada thinks it's 1840. I mean, I, I think they're like, yeah, we have naval... We have ironclad steamships and they're, you know, they're still floating around in their, uh, you know. I mean, ships. I mean, it's the, the, the declaration from the a, a Canadian parliament essentially accomplishes nothing but established, but it's, 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 a, it's, 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 it's just grandstanding. It, I mean, what does it mean? Does, does, does it mean 
I mean, they they called on the IOC, they called on the uh, Canada to boycott the Beijing Olympics in 2022. But again, you know, that doesn't fall upon the power of a Canadian parliament. You know, <laughs> IOC makes that kind of decision. So yeah. essentially, they they do nothing but say, "Hey, we are the good guys." You know, we yeah. stand against genocide because it, 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 they have suffered no penalty for speaking up. Something like that, which uh, incurred no cost to them to themselves, and there's no consequence to right. to them personally. So and I mean, what what the impact is probably the Canadian China relations. But yeah. you know, what does that you know the the, the parliament politicians they don't care about that. Yeah, you know, this, that, that, that doesn't. I mean, that, that, I mean, we can talk more about that. Like, I think Canada China <laughs> relations like us china relations they don't want no relationship they want a relationship where yeah. china is subordinate so it's yes. never it's never a let's cut them off it's always a let's humiliate them let's yeah. you know put them in their place let's yes. you know show them anyway yeah so so you know last time we did when we did Kashmir and Xinjiang. I asked you a bunch of different questions and gave some uh, data from the India Kashmir side. Yeah. So I similarly, I've made a little table here, um, and uh, the first question I thought we could take on the difference between Canada and China is the approach to you know what you might call. Uh, Islamic terrorism. So loaded term, not a term I would normally use. Um, you know, I think it makes a lot more sense to talk about very specific geopolitical forces. Like, you know, in, Af in Afghanistan, we're talking about the Taliban, which is like, came out of these refugee camps in Pakistan, consequence of US intervention and the, you know, the Afghan civil war, etc. Yeah. But okay, so here we have Al Qaeda, does 9-11 in 2001. And Canada, there's this Canadian professor, Sean Maloney from the Royal Military College. And I read his little, it's not a little book, it's a big book, a book called Enduring the Freedom, which he kind of embeds, he's like an embedded academic in mm. Canadian forces in Kandahar uh, with Operation Enduring Freedom and then with the ISAF, which the the stabilization force in Afghanistan. So the first thing he says early in the book is he says, you know, when 9-11 happened, you know, I, you know, there were Canadian lefties. He's very contemptuous of lefties, right? So there's these Canadian lefties who said, you know, this is an American problem. This is not our problem. But as far as I'm concerned, we're in this together, which kind of reminds me, and you'll appreciate this, Carl, of uh, something I read in, in um, the 1860 opium war at Peho. I think it's called Peho, Peho. Mm -hmm. There was this incident where uh, the Chinese set up some defenses and actually managed to, uh, you know, inflict some casualties on yeah. the British and American and French. Uh, this navies. is the second second Opium War yeah. when the 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 uh, the, the, the British French uh, expeditionary force there trying to storm the the port city to on their way to Beijing on their exactly. way to burn the imperial city yeah <laughs> so so there's this incident and and the british get shot and one of them get you know some some of them get wounded and there's an american captain and he says by god you know blood is thicker than water and you know <laughs> they they go in there and they help and, and the british press is like you know wh whatever disagreements america and britain has you know 
we put them aside because we're at the end of the day, we're from the same race, you know? And uh, this is not exactly what Professor Maloney said, but you, you know, when, when you say we're all, we're all in this together, <laughs> you, know, you don't have to read that far between the lines. Yeah. Right? So, so he's talking about um, something that he sees uh, and, you know, trigger, we're talking about genocide here, but I do want people to know that I'm about to tell you something fairly gruesome from his book. So he's in Afghanistan, he's in Kandahar and uh, hanging out with the troops, writing about what he sees. And, and one day he sees this, he says, I'm quoting, a Taliban insurgent had either fired a rocket propelled grenade or a 177, 107 millimeter rocket at the camp. The Afghan military forces had gotten a hold of him. His body was hanging upside down from a bridge on the main road to Kandahar, just outside the outer perimeter. They had cut his throat and they looked like they had pulled some of the skin down. A cardboard sign hung from the corpse saying approximately, don't fire rockets at the camp. Afghan solutions to Afghan problems. This was the sort of thing that public affairs people went crazy about and the corpse was removed. Wow. And he just, you know, like, isn't that cool? Uh, aren't I cool, you know, military prof? Isn't this fun? Isn't this funny? Afghan solutions to Afghan problems. So I wondered uh, how that would go over if a Chinese <laughs> prof uh, wrote yeah, well, something like that about, uh, you know. I, I, I mean, that's... I, 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 I'm You're a little shocked. bit flabbergasted yeah. by, by his, his uh, actually actually writing that down. You know, some some people are smart enough to not to say the quiet part aloud, <laughs> but there he is just saying yeah. right in the open. Um, but um, uh, first of all, you, like Canada, uh, it, same thing like Australia, right? Like mm -hmm. one of those five five eye countries of former yeah. British colonies. What do they have to do with Afghanistan? I mean, like, okay, maybe Canada feels this special affinity with its uh, North American brothers, right? But like, uh, uh, I remember like Australia, also Australia, because I, I I was recently interviewed by uh, Australia's oh, uh, Sky that. TV. We all, we all we all saw that in our house. Uh, everyone <laughs> yeah. in this house watched that. So yeah, the, it's 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 just ridiculous. Like what what does Afghanistan? What has Afghanistan ever done to you? You know, ever done right. to to Australia or, or or Canada? And and there you are. You are sending soldiers there, killing, committing atrocities. And and you are mad that you know people are people are are mocking you for this. People are are actually criticizing you for your for your actions. And and of course, this is a very classic projection. Like you know, the mm -hmm. Afghan solution for Afghan problem. It's like yeah, oh, right. you know, we're just following the century long yeah. cultural yeah. practice of the region. We're actually respecting the local traditions. Yeah, we just right? happened like, to be there when these Afghans yeah. did this to each other. Yeah, know. like uh, so I mean for like to talk about the China side. So first of all, you know, China hasn't sent any troops abroad since what 1979 i mean that's that's 40 years ago so within the last 40 years you know china has not sent its troops across the border it, it, it was not involving another foreign war and i guess there's and, peacekeeping you, know, you did i think china did uh yeah 
the Haiti. I remember seeing Chinese troops in, in Port-au-Prince. Like, yeah, yeah. China actually committed is one of the committed one of the largest UN peacekeeping uh, force. It was a contribute one of the largest contingent to the UN peacekeeping mm-hmm. force, uh, especially in Africa, but also you know as you mentioned in Haiti. Uh, but but not it, like China didn't commit its troops in in wars in foreign right, aggressions right. in the last forty right. years uh, since nineteen seventy nine. So uh, I mean, there's it's it's just it's it just kind of it's really kind of hard to even make to make the comparison yeah. because it's it, I mean yeah this is just I think um, what, what I can what, remember I, I guess what I'm what, I guess what I the the reason I make this the reason i made this entry in the table is just because like in a sense what i what i think a lot of people don't understand is the whole re-education system surveillance you know any any of the things that you know you might might be worthy of criticism right like that you mentioned the real the so-called real issues facing people in xinjiang have to do with a response to kind of a terror, you know, terrorist, what you might call Wahhabi or Islamist kind of terrorist attacks that were pretty bad in around 2008, right? So it's like there were people and then, you know, there were another group probably coming back from Syria post 2011 or 2013 or 15 or whatever, where, um, they were part of this, you know, ultimately you could trace the origins back to U.S. covert operations. Uh, And then they return and they want to do that stuff in China. Uh, You know, they have a agenda to separate calling it East Turkestan. And so these are, these are responses to that. And people don't realize that they think of it as like uncaused or, you know, yeah, I, I think that it's good to talk about this because I've seen people already online. They're trying to link, uh, uh, you know, what China is doing to the U.S. war on terror, right? Yeah, um, yeah, because I mean, the, which China the- rhetorically did too in some ways, right? In the early years, mm-hmm. yes, they were yes. kind of like, "Hey, we're the, you know, we're doing this. We're part of this yes. coalition against terror." Yes, because you know, you know, George Bush famously said, "You are either with right. us." I mean, even Hugo, us. like Hugo Chavez, they got super angry. This is when they got angry at Hugo Chavez. It was in two thousand and one. Hugo Chavez had this speech that really made the Americans enraged because he said, "You know, we are here. We are. We will be the first people to support." Uh, a, you know, fighting terrorism. And then he held up some pictures of bombing victims, and he was like, "But not like this." you know, not like this. Yeah. 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 Uh, I mean, yeah, because there's a, people are are trying to draw equivalence between Chinese actions and the U.S. actions. First of all, fundamentally, the difference is, you know, right now the U.S. imperialism affects the whole globe, all across across the world. You know, whatever... for whatever Chinese government action, you know, whether you agree, disagree, they affect primar- primarily citizens of People's Republic of China. You know, China is not going 2,000 miles uh, uh, yeah. outside of its border to bomb, uh, you know, weddings and, and funerals. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, China hasn't done that. I mean, there, there are 
uh, Uyghur militants who made their way to Syria. Uh, you know, China hasn't sent its warplane to Syria to just start bombing. That that, that hasn't happened. And and I think that's that's like the crucial difference, um, you know, between U.S. and China. I don't I don't I, I think I agree with um, I think it was Pompeo who said there's no equivalence between yeah. communist China exactly. and the United Absolutely. States. Yeah, I, I agree with him yeah. in that there's instance. No comparison. There's no comparison. <clears throat> But, um, you know, if you take so Maitreya Bakal has this thing where he's like, here are three uh, terror. Here are three responses to Islamic terrorism. The uh, the U.S. way you invade a bunch of countries and kill a million people. The India way you occupy the region and kill tens of thousands of people. The China way you create a reeducation program and incarcerate some people. <laughs> and uh, yeah. he's like, I'm not saying the Chinese way is good. I'm just saying it's the best one we've seen. <laughs> I, <laughs> and he's ice I, cold, right? Like he says, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, I mean, this is basically what I said before. You know, I, I, yeah. I'm not sure. I have reservation about what Chinese government uh, has specific actions. But right. looking across the world looking at what the response is for from the western government yeah you know i don't see a better um yeah. i don't i haven't seen a better solution a, a better method that, that, that's been i mean if any anybody you know people like the west they don't have they're the last ones to to point their fingers at china i mean look, look at yeah. what they're doing people say oh no that's that's what aboutism but but you have to look at the credibility of the person making the act. If you're making these kinds of accusations. Okay. Yeah. I, and I think Matria, uh, yeah, is right. He said the, the, the proof, the burden of proof is right. on the accusers, you know, right. on the people who are making the accusations. Right. right? And, and right now we just automatically assume China is already guilty unless proven. Yeah, well, this is one of these, uh, this one of these, um, it's one of these accusations. It's like with Israel, right? Like you, you don't want to be called an anti-Semite. So if, you know, so it's like, if you say something critical of what Israel is doing to the Palestinians, you have to be super constrained about it. You have to be super careful. You can't, you know, you have to get your facts, double check under, under, you know, underestimate the numbers, you know, never make any mistakes no dates well, i will i will say this i will yeah. say this all these claims uh, right now be made that what happened in xinjiang is worse than holocaust or or you know what what uh, you know the, the numbers of uyghurs uh, being purged by china has exceeded the numbers of jews uh, uh, persecuted under holocaust that is an anti-semitic statement i can yeah, make absolutely. that i'm gonna absolutely. make that statement right now i mean absolutely. that's that is just demeaning to the actual victims of Holocaust to, to actually compare what's happening to Xinjiang to what they have to go through in World War II. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So and, I wanted and, to, oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and the purpose of that rhetoric, I mean, like to, to compare China to Nazi Germany and, mm -hmm. and what's going on in Xinjiang to genocide is to sh it's just to shut up any, any discussion about it. Because anytime you bring doubts or you bring questions you bring evidence 
people will say, oh, you're a genocide denier because it became, now it became a very emotive issue. It's, it's like you are either with the genocide or you are, you are uh, you know, you, you are, you are either a genocide supporter or, or a denier. There's no middle ground here. They, they don't, because that's what they want to do. They, they yeah. want to shut down the discussion altogether. Which is really, and, I mean, so Aaron O'Toole, who's the conservative leader in Canada, who I think was the brains such as it is behind this whole uh, bill um, in the Canadian parliament. Um, and he quite recently, you know, months ago, I think said something about the Canadian residential schools, which were genocidal. You know, I think, you know, 50% death rates. They, they took these children from their parents. They, you know, the, the atrocities committed against these children, pedophilia rings, you know, pr- nobody was punished for, all the abuses and tortures that they committed against these children. Um, And he said something like, you know, they were well-intentioned. They were trying to bring education to these children. So some people went as far as to call him a a residential school denier, but it's like residential school doesn't sound like something like it doesn't sound like what it was. Like it was, it was genocide. This was genocide against these children. They didn't let them speak their language. They, you know, they were anyway. So, um, it's interesting that someone who, you know, is a residential school denier, to be careful <laughs> about it, is out there making accusations uh, of genocide. But I wanted to, you know, also call attention to the Canadian infrastructure situation. So um, in Canada in 2015, Uh, the current Canadian government was elected uh, on a platform of ending all First Nations drinking water advisories. So I don't know if you know this, Carl, but there are around 100 drinking water advisories in First Nations or Indigenous communities um, at any given time, which means the people who live in these communities can't drink the water there. Um, That It's about 30% of the First Nations water systems are at high risk for contamination, one in eight communities at any given time. Um, If you look at, for example, Amjinun First Nation, which is in around uh, Sarnia, it's in in Ontario, um, it has 63 petrochemical facilities. So they're all kind of like surrounding this entire First Nation. It's also called Chemical Valley. Um, It's been so poisoned that there's endocrine disruption. So there are the birth rates for girls are twice. There are two girls born in this reserve for every boy uh, because the hormone disruption has been so severe. Um, There's also the Neskatanga and Arawapiskat First Nations under uh, drinking water advisories. And my colleagues, Dana Scott and, well, my colleague Dana Scott and uh, two other co-authors, Deb Cowan and David Perla, they wrote in the conversation, uh, quote, there is only one settlement along the Attawapiskat River in this whole region that has enjoyed continuous access to safe, clean drinking water, the De Beers Victor Diamond Mine. In the fall of 2020, the mine entered its closure phase, but not once during its 12 years of operation did the Victor Mine experience this kind of crisis of essential infrastructure. So basically, if you are a mine... <laughs> You can get clean water if you're an indigenous community in Canada. Uh, the chances are, you know, not great. 
This is not limited to Canada either, because uh, I remember in high school, I did, uh, <clears throat> for my social studies, I did, uh, uh, I studied the case for the Hopis um, uh, in Southwest US, um, because the Hopi land has been managed by the federal government ever since 19th century. Uh, essentially, what they decided to do is to open up these uh, reservation lands and and give it to the coal companies and let the coal company come in <laughs> and mine okay. without consultation with the tribes and uh, that that's a what what's amazing thing is like people now uh, you know when people talk about China and they will they will say oh uh, there was actually a U.S. government paper um, somebody just. Um, posted that recently on Twitter, there was a U.S. government paper on how to leverage Chinese racism in geopolitics, you know, how to, uh, and, and one of the premise of the paper is that here we in United States, we have already confronted our racism in 1950s and 1960s and put it behind us. <laughs> but Chi Chinese have not done so, have not. I, I, when I first read that, I, I just couldn't stop laughing. I'm like, are you kidding no, me? No, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I can't wrap. It's like one of those things you can't even wrap your head around how to argue against that because it makes so little sense. Like, I, and, and, but a lot of people think like that. They think, you know, what happened to the indigenous communities in U.S., th that happened a long time ago. People think, oh, that yes, happened yes. 100 years ago. Now, now it's all good, all hunky-dory. We're all singing Kumbaya. We can, go, uh, we can go gamble in Indian casinos now, so it's all good. That <laughs> That's that. how people think. They don't realize this kind of shit still goes on today. You know, people, people still like the, the lives on the reservation is still pretty bad. I mean, this as a direct uh, result of U.S. government actions. So today. in terms of infrastructure in poor, because Xinjiang is a poor province. It's relatively yeah. poor. Um, but I saw a documentary that war China's war on poverty where they had like they basically talked about how China eliminated poverty. That's a documentary, the PBS span, by the way. So it was originally a, a, I thought a PBS made it. It was yes, it was originally a collaborative effort with PBS. But uh, after PBS showed it for like a briefly, they they received complaints from U.S. senators saying this is a communist propaganda. So they have to pull it <laughs> off air. They they okay. It's, it's, so ridiculous but it's a good okay. documentary so i did people manage to watch it, it. <laughs> yeah people should look uh, it up on youtube it's, china's it's war a yeah china's war on poverty but there was a case in xinjiang though the case in xinjiang was where the so the the poverty alleviation program is basically like they send a bunch of people like party people party cadres and they go and they do little surveys and they find out what people are doing and how they're making a living and then they uh, you know, they recommend different programs. Like if you don't have, uh, you know, if you, you might need something, a scholarship, or you might need some infrastructure thing or whatever. And so in this case, there was like a family with a bunch of camels and yeah. there was like a huge demand for camel milk. Yeah. So they basically had these people like get them onto the camel milk business yeah 
and uh, you know, quality assurance and, you know, like marketing and get the, get, make sure they could get so like, you know, camel milk, I guess is pretty perishable. So they had to, yeah. they have to have someone come often. So there, I don't know. I just felt like there's a level of seriousness about addressing poverty infrastructure deficits that Canada absolutely does not have unless it's a mine. Like I think, you know, unless we're literally going to tear the earth up and take a mineral out. Yeah. I don't think Canada can ever muster that kind of seriousness. I mean, I don't know. It goes back to your uh, earlier, what you said about the so-called country of Canada. It's uh, it's the the so the the corporation of the mining corporation (laughs) of Canada. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The rest of us just like live here. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, okay. We have a historical one now. Uh, I want to, uh, yeah, let's talk about because there, there's a projection. To, speaking of projection, there's a whole thing about how China is a settler colony, <laughs> right? Oh, so yeah, it's like yeah. China, Han Chinese are settler colonializing Xinjiang. So yeah. can you talk about like how did Xinjiang, which, you know, is a different language, when did this become? And I guess China is diverse, right? Like, India is more diverse, but China's got some diversity. Yeah. So, so well, yeah, I, tell me, tell me how this. I, I would try to make this brief. <laughs> Shorter than the champagne <laughs> I, sharks. I, I know. Whenever I said that, I'm starting like one hour long lecture. Um, go for, let's go but, for ten minutes, okay? <laughs> yeah, I'll like, try. I'll try to do summer. it ten minutes. So, uh, you know, Xinjiang because its strategic location. It, it, it's on the northwestern frontier of China and it connects China with greater Central Asia and beyond to East Asia, to, to West Asia mm-hmm. and Russia. So that area has been a very strategic location. And, and so the traditional Chinese empire tried to exert its influence and control the region on and off for the last 2000 years. Um, but 1760, that's when the last uh, Chinese dynasty, the Qing dynasty, finally brought it under control uh, one last time. And I, I guess people can say, oh, you know, 1760, that's about the same time uh, the European settlers come to come to the um, come to the Americas. Oh, first of all, I'd like to point out the Qing dynasty is not a. Uh, is not a Han Chinese dynasty. The Qin yeah. dynasty was founded by yeah, the Manchus. This is some nomadic people from from northeast China. You know, some some people call it Manchuria, and and this the, they uh, they acquired Xinjiang as uh, part of the struggle between uh, the Qin dynasty and the Mongols for for struggle for primacy in Inner Asia. Uh, at the time, Xinjiang was ruled by the Zhuang, Zhuanggar Mongols under the Zhuanggar Khanate. Um, and uh, as a result of this hundred year struggle that the Qin dynasty destroyed the Zhuanggar Khanate and, and uh, acquired this area previously ruled by Zhuanggar Mongols. And uh, the Manchu emperor Qianlong, uh, he, uh, he actually, he, he actually, <clears throat> carry out a policy of genocide. This is what, you know, maybe goes back to the, what the Canadian guys say, you know, the, the, the local, 
local local solution for the local problem, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And so he did the uh, the thing where he ordered uh, his Manchu and Mongol troops to to wipe out all the all, all the Zhuangar uh, tribesmen because you know he he sees them as uh, you know rebelling against his his authority. So what happened that is that that created a huge uh, vacuum population vacuum in northern Xinjiang. So Xinjiang is is two parts. It's a it's a huge place the size of Alaska. Um, the, the, the huge Tianshan Mountains runs in between, so it's separated between north and south. And the northern part was like the Zhuangar homeland. Homeland. Uh, the southern part is where the people that we now call Uyghurs live. But um, but then they were subjugated by the Zhuangar Khan. So that's when when Qin conquest happened. Uh, it brought the whole area into uh, into into you know Qin Dynasty China. And the, 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 the direct result of Zhuangar genocide is that northern Xinjiang, this area north of the Tianshan Mountain became, um, became depopulated. So that's when the, the Qing government then decided to bring settlers to come in to try to resettle this land. So that's when the Uyghurs from the south, from the Taran Basin uh, you know, in the southern Xinjiang, and also the Han Chinese from neighboring province like Gansu, started to come in into northern Xinjiang. Um, this is kind of the, the, the population history of Xinjiang from 1760s. Um, and and for, for much of the Qing period, this uh, the area of Xinjiang, the whole area of Xinjiang uh, breakdown was about one third um, Han, uh, either Han Chinese or Chinese speaking Muslims in the north. And then two thirds of the population are the Turkic speaking Muslims, what we today call Uyghurs who live in the south. So that's kind of the, 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 the divide of Xinjiang. And, and then uh, through period of civil wars and rebellions, um, there was actually, uh, you know, the, the Han population got re greatly reduced from, uh, you know, from one time composing of one third of the population to only about, uh, nine nine percent uh, at the beginning of uh, People's Republic when People's Liberation Army marched into Xinjiang in 1949. Um, that's when. Hey, you uh, did go fast. You're already in 1949. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm trying to because I I know before it takes me hours just to get to this point. Um, so you can, so you point, can see the map, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I can see the map. So the so the people can see if they can see this map. Much of the southern Xinjiang is composed of the Taklamakan Desert. It's the world's second largest moving sand desert in the world. And most of the Uyghur people live in like oasis cities on the edge of the, of the desert that's been fed by the glacial runoff from the Tianshan Mountains. And, and they, they mostly engage in like subsistence agriculture. And, uh, you know, in, in 19... Uh, so first of all, there's also a, a, a narrative about how the communists invaded Xinjiang in 1949. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, that, that area was not, uh, you know, after its acquisition by the Qing Empire in 1760, it was, um, has been mostly part of the either the Qing dynasty or the Republican government. Um, after the Qing dynasty, there was a brief period of about 10 years when there was a rebellion 
um, and and the the central authority collapsed. There was a there was a, a Central Asian adventurer from neighboring what is today Uzbekistan uh, by the name of Yakub Beg, who briefly uh, consolidated, established his own uh, rule in Xinjiang for about ten years. But then he was incorporated again in in eighteen seventies, and and <clears throat> after Qing Dynasty collapsed, this area just like most of other parts of China was uh, falling into warlord's rule. You know, the various Chinese warlords fought over this area. So by 1944, uh, a rebellion broke out in Northern Xinjiang, supported by the Soviet Union uh, against uh, the Chinese warlord Sun Cicai, who was ruling Xinjiang at the point. So at the point that Xinjiang was divided between the Northern, the three Northern district in Northern Xinjiang, at the, which at one point was named uh, the Second East Turkestan Republic, um, uh, and then also the much of the rest of Xinjiang, which is still controlled by the KMT aligned uh, KMT aligned armies. And so at the but the the East Turkestan Republic were dominated by um, uh, uh, Uyghur communists. And the, so when the when the Chinese communists won the, the Chinese Civil War, the Uyghur communists in northern Xinjiang, they decided to merge the, the two parties and incorporate the, 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 the former lands of uh, admin, under the administration of the East Turkestan into uh, People's Republic of China. And the, and the KMT garrisons, the, the Chiang Kai-shek troops, the 100,000 that were also in Xinjiang at the time, just decided to defect and surrender to the communists. So that's how the whole of Xinjiang got brought into People's Republic of China. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, there was, uh, you know, there was a very little, um, you know, military conflict or conquest in, in that instance, you know, it's, it, it, well, you, you, you have, you know, if people look up the inauguration, the the founding of People's Republic uh, ceremony, you know, you will see a, a man with fedora hat behind Mao. That that's a Uyghur communist. Um, uh, 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 his his uh, his name is Sipidin, and he was invited to you know participate in the founding of the people's republic and that is why after the founding of people's republic xinjiang was made into the uyghur autonomous uh, region so by con- chinese constitution uh, the people within the autonomous regions are entitled to be educated in their own mother tongue so in in xinjiang's case they have uh, uyghur schools that's taught entirely in uyghur from kindergarten all the way to college. So, so before 2000, you can, uh, you know, if you, you can grow up Uyghur and go through like Uyghur only schools all the way through university. And, 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 you know, like without even knowing a words of Mandarin Chinese, um, that, because that was guaranteed by, by the Chinese constitution. That was guaranteed right in 49? Yes. So yeah. well, from the, the, one... The, the autonomous region was established in 1955, but right okay. around there. Yeah. So, so it was, um, the, China established various, um, uh, various ethnic autonomous regions, like the inner Mongolia autonomous region was actually established in 1947. So two years before the communist victory in, in all of China. That's confidence. And, eh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So all of the, so- Inner Mongolia, uh, Tibet, I guess, is an autonomous region. Yeah, Tibet uh, autonomous region was established after uh, 1959 because before 1959, um, 
you know, Dalai Lama's uh, government still ruled Tibet. You know, Tibet, Tibet was um, ruled by Dalai Lama's government um, till 1950. In 1950, when People's, uh, when People's Liberation Army marched into Tibet, there was a 17-point agreement be between the Tibetan government and the Chinese central government, which, which stipulated that Chi Tibet will grant a high degree of autonomy, basically means everything stay as is, the Tibetan government will retain local control. But uh, what happened was in 1959, there was a Tibetan rebellion yeah. uh, in Lhasa. So after that, Dalai Lama fled to India, and that basically led to the Chinese central government to invalidate the 17-point agreement it made with the Lhasa government and then implement reform in Tibet and made Tibet into autonomous region. So, so Tibet has its own little separate history. But my, and, and, but my question is like, yeah, you can get there's resources from the state sufficient to guarantee like primary education in your own language. Yes, yes. All the way higher education in your own language. Yes, yes. In, in Xinjiang, that was the case to till 2000. So, so Canada, in, Canada obviously doesn't have that. So Canada yeah. doesn't have anything like that. And it's one of the things that uh, were one of the calls to action in the so-called Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, which I think published its report around 2015. Um, and they called for, you know, resources for education in indigenous languages. Yep. Uh, remembering that, you know, again, that was then and this is now, right? Mm -hmm. um, but back then at the residential schools, you children were beaten for speaking their uh, home language. They were yeah. not, they were forbidden from speaking their home language. Um, they were renamed. They were given Christian names. Um, their cultural ceremonies, like the potlatch, were rendered illegal. They were sterilized. Alberta had a sexual sterilization act that went from 1928 to 1972. 1972. Wow. wow. Um, and the, some of the survivors of these residential schools are um, currently being fought in court by the Canadian government uh, that doesn't want to pay compensation and so on. So the government has apparently spent $3.2 million, according to Professor Palm Palmater, um, fighting one single case, St. Anne's survivors. The federal government has taken them to court again, I'm quoting Pam Palmater, to try to destroy police documents that provide evidence of sexual assaults, suspicious deaths, and numerous abuses. She tallies $347 million have been spent by the federal government fighting First Nations in court since 2015. Wow. Um, there was one of the things in the Indian Act, so relations between uh, Canada and Indigenous peoples, First Nations are governed by the so-called Indian Act um, of 1876. Uh, and one of the things in the Indian Act is uh, specifically discrimination against Indigenous women. So like if you marry a white man, you lose your Indian status. Wow. Um, and your children lose Indian status. And so there's been a fight for, I don't know, 100 years or whatever to try to uh, reverse that. They allow now you to register, even if you're an Indigenous woman, uh, 
they've so they've allowed a kind of a registration process so you can get your Indian status back. But they suspended it during the pandemic. Oh, so, <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> you know, sorry, there's a pandemic in, in Canada. Um, I, so, uh, yeah, so I guess, I guess that's one uh, way to discuss um, the differences in terms of the law, because, um, yeah, yeah, indeed. Yeah, there is there is a little change, some recent change in in China though, because uh, after two thousand, the chi chi Chinese government had implemented basically bilingual education in okay. area like Xinjiang and Tibet. So now they introduced. Uh, Mandarin uh, instruction as well into the into the schools in Xinjiang and Tibet. So you learn both. Yeah. So before it was uh, you 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 can choose before you can either go to the Mandarin instruction only school or you can mm -hmm. go to the Uyghur only school. There's two track. And after 2000, they merged the two tracks. They just teach both languages. So you, they will teach. Uh, they will have the Uyghur. Uh, instruction, but they will also have the, the the Mandarin instruction. So, so they the teach children will learn both. So, is that what's co considered cultural genocide? Is that they're teaching Mandarin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's that's actually recently there was a controversy um, about in their Mongolian language courses because they wanted to introduce uh, the Inner Mongolian government. They started to introduce. Um, they want to introduce, uh, so before the, they, they teach Mandarin after the second or the third grade, uh, but they wanted to introduce Mandarin on the first grade, in the first grade. And then they also wanted to teach the history course in Mandarin. Uh, so, so that was causing a big uh, controversy because you know, some, some, some parents were, um, were against it, but they thought maybe that maybe they were trying to, it's a, a process of introduce like going, going full seasons. Mandarin program. So that was a controversy, but, but like that kind of been spinned off in the Western media. So like China is banning the Mongolian language. It's like, no, no, no. They're, they're just introducing Mandarin classes in an earlier grade level or, and they're into they're, 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 uh, and they're making one more course, which is history. And I think history and politics, two courses, history and politics will be taught in Mandarin, whereas before it was, been, was taught in Mongolian. Yeah. It's interesting because in 1969, uh, the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, his father uh, tried to introduce something called the white paper, which <laughs> is a perfect name. But the idea was that we were going to extinguish indigenous rights all together and make everyone just a Canadian citizen, which has always been like the dream, right? Is that everyone just becomes Canadian um, assimilation, which again is genocidal, right? You're basically destroying the completely destroying the culture of the people. Um, but it was withdrawn because first nations totally rejected it in 1970 and he said, you know what? We'll keep them in the ghetto as long as they want. Wow. So that's what Pierre Trudeau famously wow. said. Um, and I wanted a, a couple, of, a, a little connection between, a Canadian connection, a couple of Canadian connections between uh, in the, the colonization of indigenous people and China. One is uh, 
some of the people who burned down the palace, the summer palace in 1860, mm. prominent Canadians, Lord Elgin, obviously, he had been the governor of British North America. Ah, I did not know that. Governor General. So Canada is very proud of receiving a responsible government, right? Basically, Canada was like the first country that, you know, took control of its affairs from the British Empire. 1847, I think, responsible. You you know, you know, his father is, uh, is. He uh, stole stuff. Yeah, the famous uh, Lord Algin of the Algin Marbles. <laughs> he stole the Greek Parthenon Marbles? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so Lord Algin gave, he gave Canada responsible government. So he's a hero in Canada. There's places, wow. Port Elgin, there's Elgin places all over the place. Then wow. there's a Garnet Wolseley. So Garnet Wolseley was uh, at the Opium War at the burning of the winter of the summer palace, but he also fought one of the wars against Louis Riel. So one of the uh, Métis, one of the leaders of the Mm. first nations who fought against Canada's encroachment into what is now Manitoba. He was the military commander, the British appointed to fight was uh, a veteran of opium war Mm. to uh, Garnet Wolseley. And then there's another guy. There's one other guy. Anyway, and then there's John A. MacDonald. So John A. MacDonald, when he was defending the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1885, he said, the Aryan races will not wholesomely amalgamate with the Africans or the Asiatics. The cross of those races, like the cross of the dog and the fox, is not successful. So this guy's on Canadian money. I think he's on the $10 bill. Um, Wow. And, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm actually, I just, this is the first time I realized Canada also had a Chinese exclusion act just like oh, yeah. U.S. Okay. It's like, they just copy every, they just, like, they just not copy everything from U.S. Not, they've hell? never been original, never. Um, <laughs> and then the same guy, John A. MacDonald, talking about indigenous people when he was defending these campaigns in the West to take indigenous lands and massacre indigenous people he said i have not hesitated to tell this house again and again that we could not always hope to maintain peace with the indians that the savage was still a savage and that until he ceased to be a savage we were always in danger of a collision in danger of war in danger of an outbreak so that's one of our that's one of canada's founders outdoor heroes kind of connects Kind of connects yeah. the Canada and China is the perfect connection between Canada yeah, and China. That, that's why I feel there's a lot of projection when people in the West talking about China. They 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 just assume, okay, well, because we did this to yes. our indigenous people. <laughs> yes, I think there's a Everybody lot. Everybody of... must be doing it because yeah. we can't be the special one. Can't be the yeah. only us doing the genocide, right? Yeah. Like like this yeah. got to be a universal thing. Other people must, must be, be doing it nature. too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think that's a big part of it is just like, this is how the world works. And this is what everybody does. And if they aren't doing it, it's what they would do. Yeah. Like, there is a guy who said at the beginning of COVID, I've seen his tweet going around. He said something like, if you don't believe that the Chinese government will use, right? That guy, you know that? You saw that guy? Oh, CJ Warman. Oh my yeah. God. That guy, this guy started out as one of the biggest Islamophobe, right? And he was, uh, he was tweeting about uh, how when he was living out of Indonesia, how he would uh, 
he would literally fuck his maid and you know like then tip them and just like really nasty stuff and then when he got hired by the qatar qatari newspaper like middle east eye suddenly he became this great defender of the muslims everywhere like this guy is the worst grifters like ever and and he he yeah he's he sent out a tweet he said um he said this is what he said oh he said oh if you don't think the china will use a covid as opportunity to wipe out all the uyghurs in xinjiang you don't know the chinese communist party he he tweeted that about a year ago i think march 20th <laughs> 2020 i still remember because i just saw it recently that's yeah, why it's, it's, been, it's in my been mind. coming back around so yeah yeah I, yeah I it's and and of course this guy he he knows uh he he knows no arabic he knows no chinese he knows no uyghur <laughs> and he's a subject expert in he's all, infinitely all areas. qualified yeah, yeah, yeah exactly okay so speaking of um speaking of you don't know the ccp and what how people will use covid i do have one complaint about china okay go ahead Carl. yes china has maintained a really unconscionable silence as people in Canada have died uh, from COVID. And, you know, if Canada can make a statement about what's going on in Xinjiang, it seems to me that it behooves China to say something about this. Um, So Canada's privatized system of elder care specifically, like most of the deaths in Canada, 80% of the deaths in Canada have been in these long-term care facilities. So people from the States know that Canada has a public healthcare system. And that's like the biggest difference between Canada and the US, right? Oh, you have healthcare when we do, and it's great. And, you know, I would never want to trade what we have for what the US has. But long-term care is privatized in Canada. It's private for-profit system. And so that means, you know, the elderly are seen as profit units and COVID has run through. It's killed. COVID has killed more Canadian people in long-term care facilities than all the people that died from the pandemic in China. Like two, over 20, 2,800 plus deaths in Ontario, 3,890 deaths at the time of a paper. So it was months ago that this paper was published in the Lancet that I'm looking at. 21,857 deaths in total in Canada. Literally death camps. Yeah. Yeah. Compared to China, 5,000 in all of China. Right? So, you know, what's going on? Why Why doesn't China say something about this? You know what? This is the instance <laughs> where I think China should scrap its long-held uh, no non-interference. Non-interference, policy. right? <laughs> yeah, it's like because I think they're starting to doing that uh, gradually. Because recently, they the Chinese Foreign Ministry they defended the Chinese artists who came under fire yeah, by the that. Australian Prime Minister Scott yeah. Morrison uh, yeah. for for drawing a car- political cartoon about the. Mm-hmm. Uh, about the, the the Australian special forces atrocity in Afghanistan, yeah. so so maybe 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 they will they will learn to uh, be more vocal vocal about this. I, I certainly hope so. Um, yeah. So one last thing: incarceration, because this does boil down to incarceration. And yes. I did want to mention that in Canada, 
indigenous people are more than 30% of those in federal prison, indigenous women, 44% of people in prison. Um, provincial jails can be as high as 80% indigenous. Uh, and um, yeah, and, and then black Canadians or black people in Canada, they're not necessarily Canadian citizens, but are 3% of the population and 7% of the incarcerated. So they're uh, double, they're incarcerated at double their rate in the population. But you know, you know what, uh, Justin, people will say that is a what aboutism, you know, yeah. just because Canada, Canada and US can be bad, but China can be equally bad. But to that, I, I, I think I would answer is, okay, good. If you know what China, you know, US and China, US and, and, and Canada is doing is bad. Guess what? Who do you have more influence over? Do you yeah, think you have yeah. more more uh, a, ability to influence change in China versus, say, U.S. and Canada? Like in U.S. Imagine. and Canada, we can actually do some, something about it. Yeah. You know, we can actually yeah. we are. Well, I don't know. In, in today's political environment, I don't know how well, much that is true anymore. But, but the parliament, the Canadian parliament. The Canadian Parliament can do things about racism in Canada. Oh, yes, that's true. Yes. Like it's not it wouldn't an, a, a state, even a statement, even a symbolic statement about anti-black racism would make a big difference in Canada. Yes. A unanimous. Imagine a unanimous statement condemning anti-black racism in Canada. That's a strong, very strong statement. From the Parliament? Yeah. Do you know how hard, do you know if somebody would say, if somebody would say like, that's what I want. If some activist said that in some corner of Canada, do you know what they would tell them? They'd tell them this is going to take time. You've got to organize. You've got to do, you know, got to work at the grassroots. You've got to call your MPs, right? You've got to run candidates. You've got to, you know, you got to take the long view here. But if it's making a statement about Xinjiang, it's like Mike Pompeo, Adrian Zenz, put it together. Boom. Yeah. It's done. It's done in a week. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's like uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing to see now Canada and, and now now Netherlands doing this. I'm like, have you guys gotten the memo? You know, have you got yeah, the no, latest memo for your is US? Something. There is something going on, right? There's no way this happens with just like some kind of spontaneous energy. Of course. Of course and that's not. why there's this Canadian journalist, Amy McPherson. Did you see her tweets? She had like no, a 19 tweet storm a couple of days ago. Uh, she's in the middle apparently of investigating the Epoch Times mm. as well. But she says, uh, the Conservative Party pressure to force a vote in Canada is due to a campaign concocted by Steve Bannon to squeak through his agenda to force a war with China, etc. So they're capitalizing on right-wing ownership of most Canadian media to disinform the public about the Uyghur issue uh, to try to manipulate in politics and so but, on. But so, the, thing, the funny thing about Epoch Times is that, mm -hmm. you know, for years, you know, in the Chinese community, we, we, we know, we know they're full of crap. But in the English language media, the following, you know, Epoch Times is a Falun Gong uh, media, right? And the yeah. Falun Gong has always been presented as this moderate uh, religious organization being persecuted by the ruthless Chinese communists. There, the, the, the liberal media is only turning against Falun Gong media Epoch Times right now because they went in full in on Trump in the last election, 
That is why we have now reading all the expose about Falun Gong, how crazy their beliefs are, you know, how their alliance with uh, Steve Bannon's work. Like before we do, like all their allegations about China, like organ harvest harvesting source, Falun Gong Media, oh, Epoch Times, right? Everything we get they- it, Carl. We get, we get Epoch Times delivered to every house in Canada, every mailbox. Like I get Epoch Times. I don't get anything. I don't get anything, but I get Epoch Times. They just they just <laughs> drop it off in my house. I don't want and it. These, and these people, I always wonder, like, how did this, like, a, a French call, even, like, within the Chinese diaspora community, how did they finance their, their media, multi-million dollar media operation? And then, um, you know, I was talking to, like, about a couple of years ago, around the time when I did my Xinjiang podcast, I was talking to my good friend, uh, Yasha Levine, who's an independent journalist. He did a free file of Freedom of Information Act with the U.S. government. It turns out Falun Gong was getting the money from the former BBG, the, the, uh, the, the Board of Broadcasting Governors, right? A U.S. government organization. And now they're renamed a U.S. Uh, Agency for Global Media. You know, so, so, so the irony is the U.S. government is funding this, uh, you know, this uh, right-wing cultist newspaper in order to spread propaganda about China. But now, in the latest U.S. election, these these, <laughs> these U.S.-funded organizations are now trying to influence the U.S. election, the U.S. domestic politics. It's like the it's like the empire coming back to bite you on in the ass. I mean, it's 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 yeah. it's, it's almost comical. Yeah. I predict they'll patch it up. Yeah, probably, probably. <laughs> now, now that they, they, they but, yeah. You know, let's just to kind of wrap it up. You were saying this is empty posturing. <laughs> you know, I, I've been worried about. I've been, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I always worry about the Meng Wanzhou case. I don't think that mm. bodes well for Meng getting out, yeah. which is upsetting. But, um. The other thing I actually think that's going on, I think there are lots of things going on really behind this, but one of them I just tweeted, you know, I just occurred to me, I wrote this for our notes, but I just tweeted it, which is like China eliminated poverty for 800 million people. It controlled COVID in two months, which are things that Canada cannot do cannot do i mean could do physically obviously could, yes anybody can could. do anything physically right like we have the wealth yeah. in canada to do it obviously we canada could get drinking water could support indigenous languages could you know there are lots of things yeah. canada could do but with this economic model that canada has of you know 50 percent mining and 50 percent virtue <laughs> signaling um can't and i feel like in some way, like I've had this happen in conversation with, with friends of mine where I'm like, you know, we should have controlled COVID here by now. We should have gone back to normal. We should have our normal lives back by now. Uh, you know, China was able to do it. And then immediately they're just like China, you know, China's yeah. a genocidal. The, the number is fake. They're, they're faking it. They, you know, they, they, they just don't, you just don't know people are dying in droves over right. there. But even yeah. if we're not fake, even if it's not fake, they'll just be like, well, Xinjiang, you know, that's it. Xinjiang. Yeah. If, if you're like, you know, India, I was taught, I had another conversation where I was like, you know, in India, 
is like absolutely wretched in terms of like their their poverty like all the growth that's happening in india is going to like two billionaires yeah three two of them are brothers <laughs> two families <laughs> okay <laughs> ambani's and the adani but the group but um the and and then i was like but china eliminated poverty and then immediately you know xinjiang you know i watched a john oliver thing about xinjiang and it's like you know you wouldn't even do that about cash nobody would even be like if you say something about India, like, gee, the Taj Mahal sure is nice or like butter chicken sure is delicious or whatever. They sure are good with the veg food. Nobody says, yeah, but cashmere, you know, like that. Yeah. Even yeah. if, you know, even on the merit, like even that rhetorical construction is not something people use except with China. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I see on Twitter people post like a video of the Chinese train, high speed train. People will say, "Oh, but Xinjiang." But Xinjiang like, that's it. Okay, <laughs> it's that's like it. literally like a done. Chinese kids playing basketball. People yeah. will go Xinjiang. Xinjiang. We're done. Yeah. We're done. Conversation's over. It's done. Exactly. Um, and on that I, note, yeah. oh no, did you want to say something? No, 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 no. Thought uh, you know since we were like it's a mic drop, right? But Xinjiang. Right, I'll stop there.